This is Our American Stories. And the Thanksgiving story, well, you're about to hear it for the hour. It didn't become a national holiday until Abraham Lincoln declared it so in 1863. But the story of its miraculous birth and the pangs that accompanied its delivery to the new world began hundreds of years before this inauguration. What you are about to hear is the spellbinding story of how it all began and what it means to us today. They want to hit a Thanksgiving song. All right. All right. This is uh, this is a Thanksgiving song. I hope you enjoy it. Turkey, lurkey, do and turkey, lurkey, dap. I eat that turkey, then I take a nap. Thanksgiving is a special night. Oh, I love turkey on Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Thanksgiving is the only American holiday that has actually remained relatively innocent. It's not something that we have been able to commercialize. But there's something going on here more than feasting family and football. And I'm not talking about the time you constructed a belt-buckled paper hat. What is it about these pilgrims? Why do we pay so much attention to these immigrants to the New World? They were always viewed as irrelevant, weird, and different. They didn't start a college. The Massachusetts colony did. That college is called Harvard. The Pilgrims never became rich or influential. In fact, William Bradford, the governor of Plymouth Plantation, and the man who documents the founding of the Plymouth Colony, thinks at the end of his life that everything the Pilgrims had done had been a failure. So what is it about their experience that makes them so worthy of attention? That I may truly unfold the story of Plymouth Plantation, I must begin at the very root. As with many immigrants, their story begins thousands of miles away. It is told through the writings of one man who lived it. The year is 1607. The place, Scrooby Manor, in North Nottinghamshire, England. Under the flag of religion. Then said the Lord, I shall endeavor to manifest this history in a plain style with singular regard unto the simple truth in all things, at least as near to the truth as my slender judgment can attain. That was William Bradford. His record of everything that happens on their voyage and arrival to the New World is our best source of information. He keeps detailed records because he believes that what they are doing is tremendously important. Bradford's writing is later published as Of Plymouth Plantation, but it is not published until some 230 years later, in the 1850s. Lonely and intelligent, in a world that feels increasingly precarious and adrift to him, the 12-year-old Bradford seeks solace in the Bible. Bradford writes that reading the scriptures makes a great impression upon him, and the more he reads, the more troubled he becomes at the gulf between the world he sees around him and the simplicity and purity of the gospel. Oh, Father, who 
heaven, hallowed be thy He had this profound sense as a 12-year-old that the congregation he was a part of was corrupt, that the church was moving them in a direction that was not right, that they prayed to the depraved beliefs of mortal men that were moving them away from God. And so this was a deep conviction. And I think there you have the beginnings of a very complex, inward-looking person who was improbably preparing for the ultimate journey. In 1607, Bradford is an orphan living on his uncle's farm, but his passion is his faith. And without a prince, two men become his mentors. This famous and worthy man, John Robinson, was our pastor for many years. And without teraphim. Mr. Brewster, a reverend man like a father to me, became an elder of our church. Love a woman beloved of her. These two men guided us in all things. It is they who labored in this secret church to have the right worship of God and discipline of Christ according to the simplicity of the gospel. Yet others persisted to disturb the peace of our poor persecuted church. Return and seek the Lord their God. One wouldn't know it by looking at them, but these worshippers are breaking the law. The official state religion is the Anglican Church of England. King Henry VIII established it 70 years earlier in 1534. He placed himself at the head of the church, replacing the Catholic Pope in Rome. English Protestants were overjoyed. They saw England joining the great Protestant Reformation of Martin Luther and the overthrow of the old Catholic Church. Here's Dermot McCulloch, professor of church history at Oxford University. The old church had power because it said that it could help people to get to heaven by saying masses for their soul. Luther and the Protestants said that wasn't so. God had all the power, we have none. And by saying that, they said that the old church had no power. That is what split the Western world apart in the 16th century. But real change in the Church of England is slow to come. Many of the pilgrim separatists are fined or go to jail for not attending the Church of England and for starting their own separate congregation that secretly meets in people's homes. In the early 17th century, the Church of England still had remnants of the past like stained glass. The Church still had bishops and priests and deacons with cathedrals, choirs. In other words, it looked rather more like the old church, and a lot of Protestants did not like that one little bit. And when we come back, more of William Bradford's struggles back in England. We're celebrating the story of Thanksgiving here on Our American Stories. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories, and we continue with the story of Thanksgiving, 
and we go back to William Bradford and his struggles back in England. These pilgrim separatists feel the King's Church can never be purified. They must separate from it completely. That's the difference between a Puritan and a separatist. Puritans simply wanted to change it, make it better. Separatists make another big leap of the imagination. They say you shouldn't have a Church of England. You shouldn't have a church which is connected with the civil power. And in the 16th century, that's a very big deal. Because of the persecutions from the Church of England, the pilgrims decide to run away, to leave England in mass, to leave behind everything that they have known because their Christian conscience demands it. They arrive in the very libertarian seaport city of Amsterdam, Holland, which is the most exciting, prosperous, cosmopolitan city in the whole world, known for its religious toleration. You can do anything you want there, and the government won't interfere with you. Amsterdam's reputation in the early 1600s is about the same as it is today. A city famous for its prostitution and 500-plus alehouses. So when the pious pilgrims arrive in Sin City, it wasn't according to their expectations. Within a year, they decide to move again, 22 miles south, to the much smaller city university town of Leiden. Leiden is a much better fit, but shortly after arriving, another idea begins to generate a great deal of enthusiasm from some of the more daring leaders of this tiny little group. They feel called to move again, but where? Most are content with their labors here. We labor only as God wishes. Yet some prefer and choose the prisons in England rather than liberty in Holland with these afflictions. Faith, if some better and easier place could be found, it could draw many and take away these discouragements. And where would we go? Where could we go? What's of America? There are vast and unpeopled countries in America which are fruitful and fit for habitation. I have not heard that America is unpeopled. There are no civil men there, but only savages who mean. This is an extraordinarily audacious uh, proposition because up until this time, uh, there was only one existing supposedly successful English settlement, Jamestown, and that was hardly a success. Uh, People were dying at a frightening rate every year. The pilgrims decide to make their home in the new world where they can pursue their godly path without interference and without compromise. But how do these poor pilgrims get the money they need in order to finance the trip? They apply to investors who might like the idea of exploiting a bunch of religious fanatics like themselves. A deal was made. They use a big part of their very limited resources in order to purchase the aging vessel called the Speedwell. But the Speedwell will fail to live up to its name. She was called the Speedwell, and this was intended to be a vessel that would provide them with a way to explore the coast, search for furs, and if the worst should happen, it would provide them with a a method of escape uh, from the New World. About 55 pilgrim separatists leave Holland on the Speedwell for England. With a prosperous wind, we came in short time to Southampton. There we made port and found the bigger ship come from London lying ready, with all the rest of our company. The pilgrims see for the first time another ship loaded with supplies, waiting to join them for the trip across the Atlantic Ocean. 
This supply ship is called the Mayflower. The Mayflower was a merchant vessel, a cargo ship. She was not designed to carry passengers. She's about 180 tons, which means you could fit 180 casks of wine, tons of wine in its hold. She was beak-bowed, square-rigged, with high castle-like structures fore and aft. She was a very reliable ship, standard transportation of the early 17th century. The recent arrivals from Leiden are reunited with William Brewster and two fellow separatists, John Carver and Robert Cushman, who have been hard at work setting up the voyage. On August 5, 1620, as they prepare to depart, the pilgrims say their farewells, which are deeply emotional. Edward Winslow, who was one of the chief men going along on the voyage, describes the scene as follows. We refreshed ourselves after our tears with the singing of psalms, making joyful melody in our hearts as well as with the voice. And indeed, it was the sweetest melody that ever mine ears have heard. And then with mutual embraces and tears, they took their leaves, one of the other, which proved to be the last leave to many of them. After three years of planning and preparation, two ships, the Speedwell and the Mayflower, are finally on their way to America on what will prove to be the most historic voyage in human history. They weren't the people that you would expect to be founding a new colony. They weren't soldiers, they were not emissaries of a foreign government, they were not particularly well provided with supplies. At least half of them were separatists, that is to say radical Protestants, who were religious exiles, who had been living in Leiden, the Dutch Republic. They weren't the people you would automatically expect to be founding a new outpost of the British Empire. The Mayflower is under the command of Master Christopher Jones. He isn't a religious man, but he is a remarkably decent one. He is so moved by the pilgrim's devotion and faith that he offers to bunk with his petty officers and gives his cabin to the women and small children. He and his ship have been hired to take the pilgrim's provisions to America and then return to England. The two ships travel west for seven days, and then to their shock and dismay, the Speedwell begins to wallow and take on water. Not soon after the Speedwell has trouble, the master of the Speedwell noted that um, she was taking on more water than they could handle. Here's how passenger William Bradford chronicles this moment. We had not gone far, but Mr. Reynolds, the master of the lesser ship, complained that he had found his ship so leaky as he durst not put further to sea till she was mended. Because of the leaky speedwell, the ships do not turn back once, but two times. Can you imagine the miles that they retrace their steps all the way back to England? The pilgrims lose an entire month while attempts are made and valuable food provisions are sold in order to repair the speedwell. It's early September. This is not the time you want to sail to America. Westerly gales are screaming across the Atlantic. They'd be right in your teeth if you head out. William Bradford writes that some 20 passengers decide the voyage is not a very good idea and get off the ship for good. He also writes, it was judged that the speedwell would not prove sufficient for the voyage. 
upon which it was resolved to dismiss her and proceed with the Mayflower alone. On September 6th, 1620, fearfully late in the season, everyone got on the Mayflower, left Plymouth Harbor, and set out on her own across the Atlantic. Because of the Speedwell having to stay behind, there are many more people on Mayflower than they anticipated carrying initially. There were ultimately 102 passengers on, on Mayflower on a relatively small ship. It's a dark, dank, airless space, less than five feet high. So you, you, know, you were hunched as you walked up and down. There were some animals down there, goats and pigs and chickens and provisions. It was more like a cave, I think, than a place fit for human habitation. Along with 102 passengers on the Mayflower was between 25 and 35 crewmen on board. All being now compact together in one ship, we put to sea again with a prosperous wind, which was some encouragement unto us. The story of Thanksgiving continues after these messages. And again, Thanksgiving didn't become a national holiday until Abraham Lincoln declared it so in 1863. But my goodness, there's so much more to the story. When we come back, that trip across the Atlantic to the New World, here on Our American Stories, and go to ouramericannetwork.org to hear all that we do. That's ouramericannetwork.org. This is our American story celebrating Thanksgiving. We now pick up with the pilgrims sailing across the Atlantic on board the Mayflower with Captain Jones and his crew of delinquents. The rough and tumble crew do not take their cues from their kind captain. Bradford writes, Yet, according to the usual manner, many were afflicted with seasickness. A bloody psalm singing, God-fearing, puke-stocking bean farmer going to America. <laughs> See them quail, living little kicksy-wixies. One of the seamen of a lusty, able body, which made him the more haughty. He would always be condemning the poor people in their sickness. 
and cursing us daily with grievous execrations. <laughs> Into the bucket, girl! Worse than the owls! The haughty seaman tells the sick pilgrims how much he looks forward to the day he could sew them up in shrouds and feed them to the fishes. There's no sanitation facilities. If you are seasick, which many are, and have to vomit, if you have to perform your other bodily functions, you're doing it in a slop bucket and you're trying to hit the target on a moving deck. And a lot of people probably miss, so that it's not surprising that people comment on the stench below decks. Shipboard fare in the 17th century was pretty much what shipboard fare would be for centuries to come, and that is miserable. You've got beef in barrels, heavily salted, to preserve it. One daily ration of the ship's diet would give a sailor or a passenger on a ship like Mayflower over 6,000 milligrams of salt in the day. Sodium intake at that level causes dehydration and hypothermia, as well as having long-term effects like high blood pressure. The big problem in the 17th century was drinking water. The drinking water in, in England was not reliable, so people relied on beer primarily. And uh, children drank it, everyone drank it. And going to sea, the ordinary ration was one gallon of beer per day per person, which uh, comes out to, uh, you know, rather a lot of beer. The Mayflower is now halfway across the Atlantic, and the relentless teasing of the pilgrims is about to end for good. Of the haughty sailor who so figged us with his daily curses, it pleased God to smite this young man with a grievous disease and so was himself the first that was thrown overboard. Thus, his curses light on his own head. And it was an astonishment to all his fellows, for they noted it to be the just hand of God upon him. The death of a sailor is answered by the arrival of a new passenger. Oceanus Hopkins. Only one other passenger dies on the voyage. William Button, a servant, ignores the urgings of Captain Jones to drink his daily portion of lemon juice in order to prevent scurvy. And this disobedience costs him his life. Then, on November 9th, 1620, after more than two months at sea, a crew member spies a line of high bluffs gleaming far off in the early dawn light and shouts out excitedly to Captain Jones. But their jubilation quickly dims as word races through the ship that they made landfall far north of their intended Manhattan Island destination. Muskets first. Keep them dry. On Friday, December 16th, 1620, the Mayflower with its cargo of sickened and sea-weary passengers and crew anchors a mile offshore. Everything was wrong. I mean, they had to reach the shore by wading through ice-cold water to the shoreline. And Bradford says, at one point, The weather was very cold, and the spray of the sea lighting on our coats froze so hard we were as if we had been glazed. And they caught cold and they died. In the harsh winter ahead, half of them die. A fire during a snowstorm burns up much of their precious winter clothing. 
but the fire fails to reach the barrels of gunpowder. In January and February, sometimes two and three died in a day. Bradford calls it the heart of winter. It's just a very grim time. The biggest toll, the most painful toll, was by March, 13 of the 18 wives die. They die keeping their children alive. All seven daughters live, and 10 of the 13 sons live. Somehow they keep their hopes up by coming up every Sunday to listen to the preaching of William Brewster, who assures them that this is all God's will. Finally, by the middle of March, there's a turning point. It happens on a Friday. It's fair, and the sky is blue. They are still weak. They are still fearful when they spot a tall, muscular Indian wearing only a loincloth and carrying a bow break cover from the line of trees among their huts and walk boldly into their camp. They shout out, Indian, Indian coming. coming! Indian coming! Indian coming! With rifle in hand, they approach with incredible caution. But as he draws within range, the Indian shouts out in perfect English, Welcome! The pilgrims responded in kind. And then, in a fateful interchange, the next word from the Indian is, Have you got any beer? The pilgrims are caught flat-footed. They don't have any beer. They respond, Our beer is gone. Would you like some brandy? And the answer, to no one's surprise, is a wholehearted yes. As they drink the brandy, they discover that this particular Indian, whose name is Samoset, developed his English skills and his taste for beer by spending time with English fishermen who tried to colonize on the New England coast. What Samoset said that was particularly interesting is that there was a Christian Indian by the name of Squanto who spoke perfect English and was living nearby. Squanto became a Christian and spoke English because he was captured and made a slave for nine years in England before he was able to buy his freedom and return home on a ship captained by John Smith. Yes, the John Smith of Pocahontas. As Smith's ship departed, Squanto was almost immediately captured for a second time and sent to the much crueler Spain. Then, just as he was about to be sent to North Africa, where he would have been a slave for the rest of his undoubtedly short life, some Catholic friars were able to buy and rescue a few of the Indian slaves, including Squanto. So Squanto lives with the friars in a monastery, and he becomes a Christian. He also learns to speak perfect English and perfect Spanish, and learns to pray every day, and becomes quite devout. With the help of these friars, who had befriended him and became quite impressed by his fine mind and his remarkable character, he gets enough money to buy his way back for the second time. Two months before the pilgrims arrive to the Pawtuxet village in what is today Massachusetts, Squanto finds his village absolutely deserted. Everyone from his tribe has died from a series of plagues that swept across New England. Once Squanto meets the pilgrims, he will change everything. As William Bradford declares in his own recollections, as many as were able began to plant their corn, in which service Squanto stood us in great stead, shown us the manner how to set it. 
Also, he told us unless we got fish and set it with the seed, the corn would come to nothing. The fish helps the earth. It's if we're feeding our mother. He was our interpreter and was a special instrument sent of God for our good. Squanto never leaves the pilgrims until the day he dies. This is Our American Stories, the story of Thanksgiving. And when we come back, the final chapter. This is our American stories, the story of Thanksgiving. And we pick it off with the pilgrims being back on their feet, thanks to Squanto, who teaches them how to survive in the new world and guides them in building a trusting relationship with a neighboring Indian tribe that he's been living with. Now let's return to the story. On October of 1621, Bradford writes about the preparations for what we now know as the first Thanksgiving. Thus our peace and acquaintance was pretty well established with the natives about us. We began now to gather in the small harvest we had and to fit up our houses and dwellings against winter, being all well recovered in health and strength. We had all things in good plenty, for some were exercised in fishing, about cod and bass and other fish of which every family had their portion. There was a great store of wild turkeys, of which we took many. Our harvest being gotten in, our governor sent men on fowling, so we might, after a more special manner, rejoice together. They've made peace with the Indians, they had a good harvest. So they decided to have something that was familiar to them back in England, a kind of harvest feast. It was like God had sent them a strong message, okay, you're on the right path. You've actually made it through the first real test, which is surviving your year and having enough to continue. Squanto's close friend and Indian chief, Massasoit, arrives with 90 of his braves who are carrying a bunch of dressed deer. The table is set and the first Thanksgiving prayer is said. Oh Lord, hear us, Lord. How few, weak, and raw were we at our first beginning in this howling wilderness, in the midst of strangers. And yet, God, thou hast wrought this peace for us. Thou hast brought us these allies. The real heroes on this first Thanksgiving are the last four surviving pilgrim women who prepare the feast for the 140 attendees. Not surprisingly, 
These first Thanksgiving friends spend their post-meal time partaking in activities that are not too far from the spirit in which we partake in them today. They might have been racing, they might have been wrestling, they might have been competing with bow and arrow. I bet they were drinking together. It's a rowdy affair, it's a male-dominated affair more than anything else. They put on, to the best of their ability, a display of their weapons and their martial organization. So both sides are showing off their strength. Amongst other recreations, we exercised our arms. Massazoid's men went out and killed five deer, which they brought to the plantation and bestowed on our governor, upon the captain and others. One thing that's very important is that deer were a high-status food. They were very carefully bestowing these as marks of respect. For three days we entertained and feasted. Three days of celebrating. In Native society, that's typical. As a matter of fact, that's probably short. Did the Wampanoags eat the English out of house and home during these three days? Quite possibly. But the English are free to come and visit the villages of their native allies and receive similar hospitality. That's how kin treat one another. That's what the Wampanoags expect by virtue of this alliance. That's the point of the whole exercise. William Bradford and Massasoit will remain friends and allies for as long as they live despite increasing tensions from the arrival of thousands more Europeans into the Cape Cod territory. Bradford, though uncertain of the colony he founded, was certain about the final destination of his pilgrimage. Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, and being persuaded of them, and embracing them, and confessing that they were both strangers and pilgrims on the earth. But they desired a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore God was not ashamed to be called their God. And he hath prepared for them a city. The pilgrims could never have dreamed of how much their quest for a godly republic would transform the world they were sailing towards, the searchers themselves, and the nation that would rise up long after they were gone, consecrated to their memory. We love the story of Thanksgiving because it's about alliance and abundance and envisioning a future where Native Americans and colonial Americans can come together and celebrate the providences of a single God. But part of the reason that they were grateful was that they had been in such misery, that they had lost so many people on both sides. So in some way, 
that day of thanksgiving is also coming out of mourning. It's also coming out of grief. And this abundance that is a relief from that loss. But we don't think about the loss. We think about the abundance. Oh, there's no place like home for the holidays. And that abundance is found in family, in going home for the holidays. If there is such a thing as a typical American Thanksgiving, the Spikiotich family dinner might just qualify. Every year, several generations come together over a boisterous, chaotic ritual no one wants to miss. Do we have gravy? It's truly an American holiday to me. I mean, this is our holiday. Nobody else has it like we do. The people who are here come together and we all understand what it is that we're being thankful for. This is our American holiday. From Atlantic to Pacific, Gee, the traffic is terrific. Oh, Today in our society, where there are no clear answers, we look back at a time and a holiday such as Thanksgiving that once had clear answers. This is very simple. The pilgrims stood for piety. They stood for patriotism. They knew where they stood. We don't. So we look back and we see Thanksgiving as a time where everybody is in a golden afternoon sitting together around the Thanksgiving table and the families are secure and the ideals are secure and there's football on the television, everything's wonderful. And it just fits very well. Thanksgiving retains a lot of meaning for Americans today. I think the people are conscious of that. The fact that they have food on the table, the fact that they can gather together, that has meaning to them and just enjoying a good time with your friends around a table and having a wonderful meal. Those are our true pleasures in life and shouldn't be underestimated. Thanksgiving makes us pause and say, we're lucky we have this. What started as a makeshift meal in a tiny New England village has today become a national celebration of feasting and family togetherness. Thanksgiving may not be the very religious day it once was, but the last Thursday in November is still clearly a sacred date on America's national calendar. For the holidays you can't beat home sweet home For the holidays you can't beat home sweet And great job on that, Greg. And what a story that is. And again, Thanksgiving didn't become a national holiday until Abraham Lincoln declared it so in 1863. And we learned about the abundance. And my goodness, we learned about the scarcity. We learned about the joy, but we also learned about the grief. By the way, the grief of simply leaving home and leaving everything you know, that's grief. Anybody who's ever done that, I know my grandfather. He shared it with me. He left Lebanon but it was easier then. Leaving home, then losing so many people, so many women, so many men. What a story, a uniquely American story. 
and we share it with you here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories. On this day in history, in 1963, C.S. Lewis died. Throughout the 1940s and 1950s, C.S. Lewis's popular fiction made him a household name in England and the United States, where his books sold to Christian and non-Christian audience readers alike. Not much has changed since then, except that his books have now earned him worldwide fame. Let's take a look at this man and one of his most famous books. Here's Greg Hengler. On November 22nd, 1963, three towering figures of the 20th century died. President John F. Kennedy was killed by a sniper's bullet in Dallas, Texas. Aldous Huxley, author of Brave New World, succumbed to cancer. And in the exact hour as Kennedy's assassination, In the cloistered scholarly world of Oxford, England, the long career of Clive Staples Lewis ended due to kidney failure. He was 64 years old. C.S. Lewis's career was defined by his works in Christian apologetic writings. Apologetics meaning the discipline of defending or attempting to prove the truth of Christian doctrines through systematic argumentation and discourse. Here's Lewis scholar Dabney Hart answering the question, who was C.S. Lewis? He became the leading Christian apologist of the second half of the 20th century. And he became the author of the most important children's series of the 20th century. He was a complex man. C.S. Lewis was born in Belfast, Northern Ireland on November 29, 1898, the younger of two boys. Lewis enrolled at Oxford University, the oldest university in the English-speaking world, and referred to himself at this age as an atheist. His time at Oxford was cut short at 19 when he volunteered and was sent to the frontline trenches in northern France during World War I. Wounded from an exploding shell after one year in battle, Lewis returned to Oxford University where he graduated with honors. And it was there where he was then elected to begin his nearly 30-year tenure at Magdalen College. Here, with a pint of beer and a pipe, Lewis spent many late evenings at local pubs in philosophical discussion with friends such as J.R.R. Tolkien, Owen Barfield, Neville Coghill, and Hugo Dyson. 
J.R.R. Tolkien, Hugo Dyson, and other members of his late-night social group were also important for his transformation from an atheist to a theist to a Christian. From about the age of 10 until he was 33, he had been assuming that Christianity was just another myth, a beautiful lie. Here's Lewis Scholars Professor Lyle Dorset and Christopher Mitchell from Wheaton College. He was the most reluctant convert in the United Kingdom. He didn't really want to be a believer, but he couldn't help himself. He was drawn to God. God kept drawing him to him. And then he read Chesterton's Everlasting Man, and at that point he began to see um, that maybe Christianity was not so intellectually in the dark as he had thought. And so there's this this journey, but what he's doing at this point is he's really looking for reasons not to believe in the Christian faith, and yet without him even trying, things are coming into his life to force him to look at it and say, well, maybe it's not such a you know, open and shut case. It was also during these conversations at the pub where C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien decided to write what we now know as the Chronicles of Narnia and the Lord of the Rings. Here again is Christopher Mitchell. The story is told that at a point they sort of agreed that nobody was writing the kind of books that they liked to read, so they decided that they would do it. All of C.S. Lewis's 40-plus books have stayed in print since their initial publishing. In fact, sales have been increasing, with Narnia sales reaching one million annually, and his nonfiction Christian writings are not only popular, but they appeal to Christians from all denominations. Here's Lewis scholar Dabney Hart. The basis of his widespread popularity is that his Christian faith was, as he called it, mere Christianity. It was basic Christianity. It was Christianity that created a unifying element. And so Roman Catholics, and Baptists and many others you know, find there um, a reinforcement. A central part of Lewis's so-called mere Christianity is what has become known as Lewis's trilemma. What do you do with a world full of people who say Jesus was a great teacher, yet they're saying he's not who he said he was? <laughs> he's a great teacher, but he's not God. And Lewis says, well, you know, how can he be a great man and a great teacher you know, a wonderful man, a wonderful prophet, but yet not who he says he is. He's either a liar, he's a lunatic, or he's who he says he is. This was a brave move considering the secular age Lewis was living in. After all, most of the world saw only two ways to live. You either became a Nazi and conquered the world, or you became a communist and saved it. Years before Aslan and the White Witch, in the fictional kingdom of Narnia was penned C.S. Lewis explored the theme of good and evil in a thin volume of imaginative letters between two devils. Philosophical and diabolical, yet entertaining and easily readable by the masses, the Screwtape Letters is a satirical portrait of an elderly retired devil named Screwtape and his nephew, a young demon apprentice tempter named Wormwood. Each of the 31 letters from Screwtape were originally published each week in a church newspaper in 1941. The full collection of letters were published on February 9, 1942, 
The first edition of 2,000 copies were sold out even before the book was released. It would be reprinted eight more times before the end of the year and lead Lewis to being put on the cover of Time magazine with the demon screw tape standing on his left shoulder. And when we come back more on the life of C.S. Lewis, who died on this day in history in 1963. And as always, all of our This Day in Histories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. And this is Our American Stories. We continue with the life of C.S. Lewis. Let's go back to Greg Hengler. He wanted to do something that would engage people, that would engage their imaginations as well as their minds. So he settled on this technique of these letters. But one of his purposes is for people to understand the battle that's going on in their own souls and in the world around them, the struggle between good and evil, to understand what the stakes are. how deep these are. The two devils are rather cunning. They're not interested in finding the one perfect moment by which the young man will turn back on his faith and his God. After all, Screwtape advises Wormwood, why use adultery when golf will do? Here's Wormwood reading a letter from his uncle Screwtape. And doubtless, like all young tempters, you are anxious to be able to report spectacular wickedness. But do remember, the only thing that matters is the extent to which you separate the man from the enemy. It does not matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into the nothing. Murder is no better than cards, if cards can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one. The gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. Your affectionate uncle, Screwtape. Lewis's point was this. If we could overhear what our enemies say about us, in this case, demonic enemies, it would shock us into realization that we're really in a spiritual battle. You young tempters are so predictable. It's all show and flash with you, when in fact it's much better to keep the patient ignorant of your existence. How could we accomplish such a thing? There are many different ways. The worship of sex, some aspects of psychoanalysis, this thing some call a life force. They may prove useful. If once we can produce our perfect work, the materialist magician, the man not using but veritably worshipping what he vaguely calls forces while denying the existence of spirits, then the end of the war will be in sight. A wondrous day. The fact that devils are predominantly comic or absurdly exaggerated figures in the modern imagination will help you. If any faint suspicion of your existence begins to arise in his mind, suggest to him a picture of something in red tights. (laughs) 
<laughs> and persuade him that since he cannot believe in that, it is an old textbook method of confusing them, he therefore cannot believe in you. Right. Here's Screwtape explaining to Wormwood that the battle is not a carnal one, as humans often think, but it is spiritual. But this business of the humans being in love, is, is that desirable or not? Really, Wormwood, that is the sort of question one expects them to ask. Leave them to discuss whether love or patriotism or celibacy or candles on altars or teetotalism or education are good or bad. Can't you see? There is no answer. Oh... Nothing matters at all except the tendency of a given state of mind in given circumstances to move a particular patient at a particular moment nearer to the enemy or nearer to us. Got it? Yes, Uncle. Temptation and screw tape is distortion, exaggeration, and short lies that the enemy tells the believer so that he will mistrust God. And small sins will snowball into big sins. Talk to him about moderation in all things. If you can get him to the point of thinking that religion is all very well up to a point, you can feel quite happy about his soul. Brilliant. A moderated religion is as good for us as no religion at all, and much more amusing. Here's Wormwood reading a follow-up letter from his uncle Screwtape. My dear Wormwood, obviously you are making excellent progress. For this reason, I am almost glad to hear that he is still a churchgoer and a communicant. What? I know there are dangers in this, but anything is better than that he should realize the break he has made with the first months of his Christian life. As long as he retains externally the habits of a Christian, he can still be made to think of himself as one who has adopted a few new friends and amusements, but whose spiritual state is much the same as it was six weeks ago. And while he thinks that, we do not have to contend with the explicit repentance of a definite, fully recognised sin, but only with his vague, though uneasy feeling that he hasn't been doing very well lately. The purpose of Lewis's screw tape letters was to stimulate a fascinating discourse on the sinful nature of man versus the redemptive nature of God. As Lewis wrote in Mere Christianity, no man knows how bad he is till he has tried very hard to be good. Yet despite his lengthy and acclaimed tenure at Oxford, this humorous man of great wit and success was repeatedly denied professorship. His popularity on sort of a lay level, his willingness to to write outside the academic community, to write for the common person, and especially to write theology, to write Christianity, and to do it so boldly, and actually to attack his colleagues' positions, didn't make him popular. Despite being shunned by his colleagues in academia, Lewis was besieged by countless letters from fans in the English-speaking world and he personally responded to every single one. Considered by many, if not most, to be the greatest Christian writer in the English language, C.S. Lewis has left an unmatched legacy. Here again is Lyle Dorset, Christopher Mitchell, and Walter Hooper, literary advisor to the Lewis estate. 
I consider Lewis's greatest legacy being that the 30-some books he wrote in many genres, all the writing he did, that uh, many, many lives during his lifetime and continuing to this day have been utterly changed because of what he did. People, uh, broken people, wounded people, people bound up in all kinds of things they wanted to be free from have found freedom through Jesus Christ that Lewis's books pointed to. I certainly was one of those, and I am not unique. You may not at the end of the day agree with him, but Christianity is no longer this uh, sort of mindless um, believism, but there, there's a reason for accepting these things, and, uh, and you just can't write it off. And those who do, I think, um, have not really listened to him. Well, in other writers you've been finding, you've been reading, you get a corner of the curtain is raised, you get a little bit of the truth. With Lewis, the big curtains just open up wide, they extend all the way to the side of the theater, and you see everything that's in front of you. You see more than you've ever seen before. To see through Lewis's eyes is to see the universe almost as I think God sees it. Lewis admitted that while the writing process for the Screwtape Letters was easy, he confessed that being in the mindset of a demon had its consequences. He said, It almost smothered me before I was done. But Lewis's readers are eternally grateful. As the New Yorker stated, If wit and wisdom, style and scholarship are requisites to passage through the pearly gates, Mr. Lewis will be among the angels. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. Great job as always, Greg. And C.S. Lewis had so much to do with my becoming a Christian. In fact, it was the reason. And so many millions of us uh, later in life who read Lewis uh, came to Christianity from atheism. And the impact this man's had on civilization is remarkable. It's great to hear his story. And as always, our This Day in Histories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, where you can go to learn all of the things that matter in life, all the things that are beautiful in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you with her terrific and free online courses. There are over a dozen and a half of them. And my goodness, uh, get online, have your family take the courses, and the course on C.S. Lewis taught by one of the great Oxford professors, is as good as anything you'll see on almost anything. C.S. Lewis's story, here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and for the next half hour, we're going to do something really important. We're going to be talking about the top 10 sodas in the world with a special report from our producer, Jesse. But first, to set the stage and to illustrate our love for soda pop on this show, we're going to go back and listen to an off-the-air rant that took place here in the studio. I was telling the team about a restaurateur I knew back in the day who was a perfectionist when it came to the ice he would serve in his drinks to customers. The conversation then spilled over into a passionate discussion of my personal love for Coca-Cola. Let's take a listen. Coke had to be cold before it was poured under the ice. It's warm Coke mm. on ice tastes different. And then the ice changes the kind of the Coke. And then the kind of Coke, he's one of the first people to get Mexican Coke. He was a freak about it. Because Mexican Coke is, as everybody knows, superior to American yeah. Coke. Yeah. Really? Oh, no, no comparison. They, they have, what, like 400 different recipes, and they're all catering to different regions of the, they have of region, the world. And there's one in particular, the part where a Baja's Mexican Coke is like the original Coke. Yeah. It was, it's just more expensive because it's the real, real sugar. It's not the... The stuff, the refined, it's sugar, sugar. Sugar cane. Yeah, yeah. sugar cane. From the Better cane. than McDonald's? No, McDonald's is the best ever. Okay. McDonald's <laughs> has a special recipe from Coke. Yeah. And, and some of them said, for, screw it, just give us the mass stuff at a vat. So you'll go to some McDonald's, especially ones where the Coke's given by the people behind. And then they have a special mix, and they have a, a special a, a extra amount of syrup that they put in. They put in more syrup. Secret Coke. Oh, no. And I literally, there are <laughs> hundreds of thousands of people who literally know the McDonald's that serve the special McDonald's soda. And it's not every McDonald's because it costs more. It's actually quite a bit more. It's like three or four cents a drink, which sounds yeah. like nothing. Mm -hmm. But yeah, in the no. overall mix of all that soda, they'll go screw it. The damn customers don't know. There was one McDonald's in, in Baltimore where I stopped going when they changed it. Mm. <laughs> and I used to like drive 20 minutes. And I don't think they ever figured it out. Yeah, no, it, you know. I know, it's a little sad, isn't it? How did you find out that you just tasted the change? Oh, yeah, I tasted it, and I, I also knew. I mean, I would always be, look, I look, yeah. I didn't have, oh, I could taste it. I don't need to ask. <laughs> and with you, it's self-serve, it's not that. Because once you go to self-serve, then they just go to the traditional mixes. So it had to come from the back. And there's a couple of other restaurants that did that deal with McDonald's. Chick-fil-A did it for the longest time. And then I don't know what happened. I don't really? know if they paid. Yeah, because there just became too many people who hadn't been. Here, here's what it came from. The people who ever had an original Coke from the soda fountain, from the yeah. ice cream parlor, yeah. knew that you could say to the man with the hat, and especially if you had the seltzer really cold, you'd say, give me an extra shot of the syrup. And he would just go, this, this. And I mean, you'd be flying for the whole day. And it just tasted freaking great. But, you know, each jolt of the syrup. You know, he's, you know, if it was 12 cents for the Coke, he'd say, you know, 15 right. or whatever. It's like extra hot fudge on your hot fudge at the basket. It's like an extra shot and you It's like an extra shot of whatever. Absolutely. <laughs> and there you have it. We are passionate about all things here at Our American Stories. And with that, we now go to our executive producer, Jesse Edwards, with his report on the top 10 sodas in the world. There's finally an official and seemingly unbiased ranking of sodas, or soda pop, or pop, depending on what part of the country you're in. And the results might surprise you. The top dog should be obvious, but its longtime rival is strangely much lower on the list than expected. Bear in mind, this is as legitimate as possible. We didn't poll a handful of people waiting for the subway. It's a poll that just closed on Ranker.com, and over 185,000 people voted. It's pretty hard to dispute these statistics. Here's a look at the top ten, starting with the tenth position and working our way to the coveted spot of number one. 
At number 10 is Pepsi-Cola. Cooking Pepsi on the same thing. Wake up, people. We always assumed that Pepsi was almost as popular as Coke, but according to this poll, it's not even in the same ballpark. Pepsi was first named Brad's Drink in New Bern, North Carolina in 1893 by Caleb Bradham, who made it at his drugstore where the drink was sold. It was renamed Pepsi-Cola in 1898 after the root of the word dyspepsia and the cola nuts used in the recipe. The original recipe also included sugar and vanilla. Bradham sought to create a fountain drink that was appealing and would aid in digestion and boost energy. In 1903, Bradham moved the bottling of Pepsi-Cola from his drugstore to a rented warehouse. That year, he sold 7,968 gallons of syrup. The next year, Pepsi was sold in six-ounce bottles, and sales increased to 19,848 gallons. In 1931, at the depth of the Great Depression, the Pepsi-Cola company entered bankruptcy, in large part due to financial losses incurred by speculating on the wildly fluctuating sugar prices as a result of World War I. On three separate occasions between 1922 and 1933, the Coca-Cola Company was offered the opportunity to purchase the Pepsi-Cola Company, and it declined on each occasion. Here's an old Pepsi commercial from the time when the drink only cost one nickel. Pepsi-Cola hits the spot. Twelve full ounces, that's a lot. Twice as much for a nickel, too. Pepsi-Cola is the drink for you. Thirsty people everywhere prefer ice-cold Pepsi-Cola. And because it's light, it refreshes without filling. Charlie, be sociable. I am, Kay. Pepsi is a favorite of thirsty people from Maine to Hawaii, from Alaska to Florida. Charlie. It's perfect for parties or picnics. So serve Pepsi to your guests. That's helpful. But this is the sociable part. Keep plenty of Pepsi ice cold and ready. Remember, it goes fast because everybody likes Pepsi. Singing still sounds more inviting. At number nine of the world's most popular soda pop drinks, Canada Dry Ginger Ale. It's a brand of soft drinks owned since 2008 by the Texas-based Dr. Pepper Snapple Group. For over a century, Canada Dry has been known for its ginger ale, though the company also manufactures a number of other soft drinks and mixers. Although Canada Dry originated in Canada, it's now produced in many countries, including Mexico, Colombia, the Middle East, Europe, and Japan. The dry in the brand's name refers to it not being very sweet, as in a dry wine. Here's an early Canada Dry ginger ale commercial from the 1960s. Somebody saw the shot, and she's got a cold drink for you. Canada Dry ginger ale. One gulp is for thirst, the other gulps are for kicks. Come in on a wave and end up at a party. It's going to be a good evening. Canada Dry Ginger Ale. One gulp is for thirst, the other gulps are for kicks. In at number eight of the most popular sodas in the world is Cherry Coke. Long before its official introduction in 1985, many diners and drugstore soda fountains dispensed an unofficial version of Cherry Coke by adding cherry-flavored syrup to the Coca-Cola mix. Coca-Cola tested Cherry Coke on an audience in 1982 at the World's Fair. It then entered mainstream production during the summer of 1985. Cherry Coke, which by 2007 had been renamed Coca-Cola Cherry in the U.S. and some other countries, was the third variation of Coca-Cola at the time, the others being Coca-Cola Classic and Diet Coke and the first Flavored Coke. Listen to this terribly 80s Cherry Coke commercial. Cherry Coke. 
at number seven is Orange Crush. In 1911, Clayton J. Howell, president and founder of the Orange Crush Company, partnered with Neil C. Ward and incorporated the company. Ward made the recipe for Orange Crush. Howell was not new to the soft drink business, having earlier introduced Howell's orange juice julep. Soft drinks of the time often carried the surname of the inventor along with the product name. Howell sold the rights to his name in conjunction with his first brand. Therefore, Ward was given the honors. Crush was first premiered as Ward's Orange Crush. And originally, Orange Crush included orange pulp in the bottles, giving it a fresh, squeezed illusion, even though the pulp was added rather than remaining from squeezed oranges. Pulp has not been in the bottles for decades. The band R.E.M. even titled one of their popular songs after the fizzy drink, though I'm not entirely sure of the point these lyrics are trying to make. This is Our American Stories and more on the top 10 sodas in the world and more with Jesse's Report. our American stories and when we left off our producer Jesse was ripping through the top 10 sodas in the world according to a poll of over 180,000 people we now return to this special report in at number 6 of the most popular sodas on the planet is 7up When someone brings up soda rivalries, many people's minds immediately head towards Coke and Pepsi. But the rivalry between Sprite and 7-Up is pretty good, too. 7-Up was created by Charles Leeper Grigg, who launched his St. Louis-based company, the Howdy Corporation, in 1920. Grigg came up with the formula for a lemon-lime soft drink in 1929. The product, originally named Bib Label Lithiated Lemon-Lime Soda, oof, that's a tongue twister, was launched two weeks before the Wall Street crash of 1929. It contained lithium citrate, a mood-stabilizing drug, until 1948. It was one of a number of medicine products popular in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Its name was later shortened to 7-Up Lithiated Lemon Soda before being further shortened to just 7-Up by 1936. Westinghouse bought up 7-Up in 1969 and sold it in 1978 to Philip Morris, who then, in 1986, sold it to a group led by the investment firm Hicks & Hass. 7-Up merged with Dr. Pepper in 1988. Cadbury Schweppes bought the combined company in 1995. The Dr. Pepper Snapple Group was spun off from Cadbury Schweppes in 2008. Originally branded as the Uncola, 7-Up made some pretty funny commercials back in the 1980s. Her first Uncola, the moment in every girl's life when she leaves her childhood of one cola after another cola behind and begins a lifetime of the fresh, clean taste of 7-Up, a lifetime of security in the knowledge that the Uncola is never too sweet that the Uncola has everything a cola's got and more besides. The Uncola is forever. 
In at number five of the world's most popular soda pop drinks is A&W Root Beer. Root Beer, along with sarsaparilla, birch beer, and cream soda, is one of the most old-timey sodas available. Sipping it brings drinkers back to simpler times. Plus, it's just begging to be used to make a root beer float. On June 20th, 1919, Roy W. Allen opened a roadside root beer stand in Lodi, California, using a formula he purchased from a pharmacist. He soon opened stands in Stockton, California, and five stands in nearby Sacramento, home of the country's first drive-in featuring tray boys for curbside service. In 1920, Allen became partners with Frank Wright, and the two combined their initials, calling their product A&W Root Beer. Here's a funny A&W Root Beer commercial from a few years back where a guy is at a job interview getting the name of his potential new boss completely wrong. Mr. Dumbass... I can bring a lot to dumbass and dumbass. I'm a go-getter. Dumbass material all the way. So, am I your man, Mr. Dumbass? The name is Dumas. That's pretty thick-headed. But nothing compared to the rich, thick, frosty mug taste of an A&W root beer. With A&W, it's good to be thick-headed. What a dumbass. At number four for the most popular soda drinks in the world is Mountain Dew. Mm. Tennessee bottlers Barney and Alan Hartman developed Mountain Dew as a mixer in the 1940s. Soft drinks were regional in the 1930s, and the Hartmans had difficulty in Knoxville obtaining their preferred soda to mix with liquor, preferably whiskey, so the two men developed their own. Originally a 19th century generic term for whiskey, especially Highland Scotch whiskey, the name was trademarked for the soft drink in 1948. The Tip Corporation of Marion, Virginia bought the rights to Mountain Dew, revising the flavor and launching it in 1961. In 1964, PepsiCo purchased the Tip Corporation and thus acquired the rights to Mountain Dew. Here's the very first Mountain Dew TV commercial from 1966 that promises the drink will tickle your innards. Beautiful Sal was a stone-hearted gal, refusing to bill or to coo. But Clem was right smart, he appealed to her heart with that gal getting good old Mountain Dew. Yahoo! Mountain Dew! Mountain Dew will tickle your innards, cause there's a bang in every bottle. At the county turkey shoot, cause Luke weren't worth a hoot. He was hopeless till he finally took the cue. Yahoo! Mountain Dew! Now he shoots off the cup. It's more than enough after nipping at that good old Mountain Dew. Sure is shooting. There's a bang in every bottle of our delicious soft drink, Mountain Dew. It'll tickle your innards. And at number three of the best sodas in the entire world is Sprite. The winner of the Lemon Lime Soda War, Sprite is the go-to citrus beverage for most people. It's a colorless, caffeine-free, lemon-lime flavored soft drink created by the Coca-Cola Company. It was first developed in West Germany in 1959 and was introduced in the United States as a competitor to 7-Up. Over the years, Sprite has had 17 variations worldwide, including Sprite Zero, Sprite Remix, Blast, Ice, Duo, Super Lemon, Lemon Lime Herb, Recharge, 3G, Cranberry, Six Mix, and Sprite Tropical. Sprite can also help relieve stomach pains such as those caused by gassy buildup. <laughs> 
Carbonated beverages such as Sprite can cause you to burp and expel some of the gas, thus relieving you of your stomach pain. You're someone special, you're striving for more, trying to do things better than before. You're trying harder, you're reaching so tall, you're drinking Sprite and you're giving it your all. You found more in Sprite, you found lime and you found more in you. Number two for the most popular soda pops in the universe is the great and grand Dr. Pepper. One of my personal favorites. The U.S. Patent Office recognizes December 1st, 1885 as the first time Dr. Pepper was served. It was introduced nationally in the United States at the 1904 Louisiana Purchase Exposition as a new kind of soda pop made with 23 flavors. Its introduction in 1885 preceded the introduction of Coca-Cola by one year. It was formulated by Brooklyn-born pharmacist Charles Alderton in Morrison's Old Corner Drugstore in Waco, Texas. To test his new drink, he first offered it to store owner Wade Morrison, who also found it to his liking. Alderton gave the formula to Morrison, who named it Dr. Pepper. As with Coca-Cola, the formula for Dr. Pepper is a trade secret, and allegedly the recipe is kept as two halves in safe deposit boxes in two separate Dallas banks. A persistent rumor since the 1930s is that the drink contains prune juice, but the official Dr. Pepper frequently asked questions refutes this claim. A woman by the name of Donna Lauren was the one and only Dr. Pepper girl from 1963 to 68. She was signed to a long-term contract with the soft drink company to sing all television and radio commercials, do all magazine and billboard advertising, representing them in every capacity, sometimes sharing the spotlight with American Bandstand's Dick Clark. Here she is in this vintage Dr. Pepper TV commercial from 1964. Hi, I'm Donna Lauren. Many words can describe Dr. Pepper. Here's how our caveman friends do it. Now that you all have a bottle of Dr. Pepper, I want you to take a taste and then give me your reaction in one word. Remember now, one word. Flavor. Lift. Light. Lively. Zonk. The soft drink with zonk? Well, that's one way to praise Dr. Pepper. Here's mine. Good times begin with Dr. Pepper. Distinctively different, Dr. Pepper. Not a cola or a root beer, a light to lively taste that you cheer. The lift is great, the flavor fine, it's Dr. Pepper time. And who could forget this scene from Forrest Gump when Forrest meets President Kennedy at the White House? I must have drank me about 15 Dr. Peppers. Congratulations. How do you feel? I gotta pay. <laughs> I believe he said he had to go pee. And here it is. The number one spot. The big kahuna. The top place in the universe. The best soda in the galaxy. is Coca-Cola. Looks like we made it. Big surprise. The winner and champion still. Originally intended as a medicine, it was invented in the late 19th century by John Pemberton and was bought out by businessman Asia Griggs Candler, whose marketing tactics led Coca-Cola to its dominance of the world soft drink market throughout the 20th century. 
The drink's name refers to two of its original ingredients, which were cola nuts, the source of caffeine, and coca leaves. The current formula of Coca-Cola remains a trade secret, although a variety of reported recipes and experimental recreations have been published. The Coca-Cola company produces concentrate, which is then sold to licensed Coca-Cola bottlers throughout the world. The bottlers, who hold exclusive territory contracts with the company, produce the finished product in cans and bottles from the concentrate in combination with filtered water and sweeteners. The bottlers then sell, distribute, and merchandise Coca-Cola to retail stores, restaurants, and vending machines throughout the world. Here's a vintage Coca-Cola Coca-Cola TV ad from the early 1950s. There are times every day as you work or you play when a pause would be welcome to you. And it's then that you find the bright thought in your mind that only a Coke will do. 50 million times a day at home, at work, or on the way. There's nothing like a Coca-Cola, nothing like a Coke. Nothing. And that's our look at the top 10 sodas in the world, according to a poll of over 185,000 people. From Pepsi at number 10 all the way to the top spot at number 1, the original Coca-Cola is the reigning champion. This is Our American Stories. I'm Jesse Edwards.